And we are live from the Empire of Lies, an oasis of free speech and open debate in the wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan. This is Backstory. Let's say hi to our producer, Rod from Philly. Hi, Rod. How you doing? Doing well, Lee. Can't complain. How are you feeling today? It's pretty hot here in South Dakota. How's it on the East Coast? Uh, I was like in the low 90s, you know, kind of hot and humid as well. Yeah. Same here. About. Not low, maybe, but... I think now it's below mid-90s. Well, we've had temperatures near 100, so it's hot across the country. Now, we have two great guests today. Our friend Susan Pye, immigration attorney, will be joining us in the first hour. And the second hour, the great Manila Chan, the co-host of Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan, are right here on Sputnik. And we are guest host free today, right? Correct. Now, let me say, let me get to the boom. That's all coming up and your calls. 202-521-1320 on the backstory. Now, we're coming up Monday is July 4th, the day and the holiday. Right. It's officially July 4th on Monday, right, Rod? Correct. So that's a day off for sure, right? Yeah, no, we, we won't have to come in for that. Okay. So I wanted to come into my room, which can sometimes be good. Because I'll be honest, the room I do the radio show in is a back bedroom. And it's when it gets hot, the back bedroom, the reason I chose it is it's not near windows. So that means it gets very hot. So I don't want to be whiny, but it does get hot in here on hot days. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Now, let me make a guest suggestion for tomorrow, if I may, Rod. Meathead. I would suggest that before the July 4th holiday, if we try to get Meathead Goldwyn, author of the book Meathead, the great rib expert, you know, I like having him on. And before July 4th is perfect for him to talk ribs. Right, Rod? Yeah, that sounds great, Lee. And uh, maybe I, I can uh, ask him about my method. I, I use the uh, bake broil method on my ribs. Uh, how about yourself? The what? What do you do? Bake and then I broil broil them for a little bit. You know, get the outside crust and uh, inside uh, soft. So I I've been doing various things. I don't have a barbecue grill, a proper grill here at my apartment in Sioux Falls, but I do have a pressure cooker, the Ninja Foodie. And so I've been doing some recipes where you pressure cook them first, basically, and then you air fry them. Does that make sense? I'm working with what I got. Yeah, that makes sense. I know how to do it in theory if I had a barbecue grill, but I can't have one here because apartment, so I'm stuck. 
But I may even go out to a park and light her up out there. But that usually means, have you seen grills at parks? They're kind of scary, aren't they? Um, I, the last, I went to a park in uh, outside of Philly. It's in uh, Bethlehem. It's called Nakamixon State Park. And, you know, they had the grills set up there where you can use them. So I really haven't seen people bring a grill to the park in a minute. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Using the built-in ones, which can be a little scary. But we'll see. I, I'm probably just going to be lazy. I may make someone, I may have a restaurant make me ribs. Because they do that at restaurants. And that's much easier. But meathead on the show tomorrow would be fantastic. Now, today, we got Susan on, and she's an immigration expert. And she, of course, will be talking about the headline. The last day of the Supreme Court session, we got two rulings from the court, and one was on immigration. Right, Rod? Correctly, the uh, Remain in Mexico policy, or the Title 42, as it known, is uh, is officially could uh, Biden can uh, end it himself. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that that Biden can end it, and uh, as we have seen, I've seen the headlines that the, he's already getting pressure to end it. So they want more immigration, illegal immigration. Lee. And we'll see when Susan comes on. I have a theory. This is not a radical ruling by the Supreme Court. As I understand it, and we'll find out from Susan if my understanding is correct, basically the Supreme Court ruled that they did not have jurisdiction. No court did. That basically if Biden as president wants to end that policy, he has the right to. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's the understanding I got. But I, the, what I was saying is that, that I'm, oh, he's already getting pressure from uh, progressives. That's the title I saw. The progressives are already pressuring him to to end it immediately. I'm saying the, not, not the Supreme Court, but these activists, they want illegal, more illegal immigration. Well, since the Supreme Court term ended, Breyer resigned officially, and Brown Jackson is now in as a Supreme Court justice. So we have a new Supreme Court justice, but it doesn't matter much. It Would Roe versus Wade been ruled different, differently if Brown Jackson was, uh, rather than Breyer, was in there? The answer is no, right? It still would have been 6-3. And we'll see how she writes. We haven't learned that yet, how our rulings are, because Breyer wrote the dissent in Roe v. Wade. So that wouldn't have happened. But we'll find out. Sotomayor, what I hear from people who know is that Sotomayor seems like an idiot when you read her rulings. Have you heard that, Rod? Um, I got I got uh, that. I got that from listening to her talk about certain subjects. So uh, uh, <clears throat> totally opposed from what you're saying uh, from a lawyer's point of view, just from hearing her talk as a regular layperson, 
you know, I don't think she has any real intelligence. I think she's just like an activist. Uh, she's just a, she's just a Supreme Court activist. Yes, and by the way, the leaker still has not been identified, and that is dragging on. And it's bizarre to me, but it's not bizarre that that is. Oh, by the way, speaking of investigations dragging on, the German investigation, the statute of limitations ran out on certain things he could charge the FBI with. You see that, Rod, right? Yeah, I read, I read that the other day, Lee. Durham can no longer, on certain charges, the statute of limitations is out. So we might have gotten the most we're going to get from Durham. If people have that sneaking suspicion, do you have that suspicion, Rod? Uh, yeah, 100% Lee, ever since Barr nominated him for this position and we already know who bill Barr was i didn't i didn't expect much you know that's why i went to the uh to the michael sussman trial I, I, I wanted to see it in person i you know you can't get a real good feel just reading it and when i when i was there in person it just felt like a uh felt like a school play it felt like you know these, these people were all acting and yeah you even saw well i saw durham even help the uh the defense so i just felt like he, he uh it was just one big act so anyone who is expecting big things from Durham, first off, I'm sorry for your naivete, but I'm laying you down easily. The statute of limitations has expired, so it's effectively done with Durham. On some of the major things he could have brought charges on, I'm not saying it's closed on everything, but on the major stuff. Now. So we have a new Supreme Court justice, and again, I'm saying it's ultimately, do we know, if anything, what is expected to change? Have you heard any, anybody be hopeful about what might change? Even hopeful? No, Lee, uh, just identity politics. She's a black woman. Uh, that's, you know, or what is a, what is a woman? So um, that's her most famous thing as of now. She doesn't know what a woman is. So you have to ask a biologist. Now, Biden is talking about, speaking of a Roe versus Wade, Biden is now talking about codifying it into law. And he said today he's willing to forgo the filibuster to make that happen. Do you think there's any chance Biden and Congress are going to co codify Roe versus Wade into law. I say no. Yeah, I agree with you. Personally, I say no. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. And the filibuster isn't the problem. The problem is Congress. There aren't enough votes. And, but, but they're trying to hold out hope to tell people who are upset that Roe versus Wade was overturned. And by the way, here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, last night, there's a pro-choice protest in the streets that the police had to break up. About 100 people were out there. So even in Sioux Falls. And ever since Roe versus Wade has been overturned, there's a number of states, Louisiana, 
Kentucky, Florida, the name but a few, where attempts to end abortion in those states have been temporarily stopped by lower course rulings. You've seen that, Rod, right? Yeah, I've gotten those alerts on my phones, um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out through the court system. Because there was also the gun ruling last week. A friend of mine in New York, and that struck down the restrictions. New York makes you, to get a concealed carry permit, you got to show you had a special need, right? The Supreme Court last week said, no, you don't. It's a right. You don't have to show a special need. But in New York, they're still not issuing concealed carry permits. I had a friend try to get one, and they wouldn't give it to them. So that's what happens. When the Supreme Court rules, it's not like someone snaps their fingers and instantly everything's different. Some of these things have to shake out a little bit. I think you are going to see and clearly, in some states, like Missouri, you're seeing some changes in abortion laws already and the practice of abortion. But in other states, it's still up in the air. And states are saying, for instance, I think it was in Florida. It may have been Kentucky. No, I think it was Kentucky. The state is saying... There's a, a state right to abortion, which is news to some judges in Kentucky who didn't know that there was any such state right to abortion. But that's what some lawmakers are saying in some states. So there's nothing clear, except what is clear is any Democrats hoping this is codified into law. I know. Notice the media tries to talk about abortion like it's hugely popular. And they say a majority of Americans, how many times have you heard this, Rod? They say a majority of Americans are in favor of abortion. And they go on to po- point to a poll that shows six out of 10 Americans are in favor of abortion. That is a majority, but it's about what I expect. Would you expect much more than six in 10? That's not much from a majority, I say. What do you say, Rod? Yeah, no, that's not much of a majority at all, Lee. And, um, I don't really trust these polls that they come that they come with and they, they talk about, um, you know, you can't have this many different uh, nationalities, religions, and other, uh, you know, other things that have p- people – that have their values and say, oh, a majority of Americans feel that uh, they're in favor of abortion. I, I don't believe that. I don't I don't drive around. I don't see across America that I that I would see that um, this majority just be, you know, yeah, we're all in favor of abortion. And what I see is I see abortion laws are unlikely to change in about six cents of the country. That's a rough estimate. But does that sound right to you, Rod? Going to be, you'll still be able to get an abortion in about 60% of the country. That's what it looks like to me. 
Uh, yeah, I know Pennsylvania and New Jersey, you can still get an abortion. They uh, <clears throat> immediately, you know, the governors, both governors came out and said, you know, you can still get an abortion in both both states. So, um, you know, that's not go- that's not going away anytime soon. And so that to me shows federalism working. Six, ten, six tenths of the country is in favor of abortion. And I think in about 60 percent of the country, effectively, abortion laws won't change. That's federalism working. And, but the Democrats, we've talked before because so much of their fundraising comes from Planned Parenthood. They need to make it seem like they're doing something. I'm seeing a lot of Democrats pissed off saying the Democrats have failed them. Have you seen that? People like Jimmy Dore are talking about how they, they point out correctly. The Democrats knew this was coming. Can anyone be surprised by the fact that they were trying to overturn Roe versus Wade? Trump said it. It was very clear what he was trying to do. And that, but, but the Democrats act shocked. Like, how could this happen? Well, because they elected a president who said he was going to make it happen. Trump was very clear on what he planned to do with abortion. Am I right? Yeah, no, you're 100% right on that, Lee. And uh, I've been hearing, like we did on the previous show, by any means necessary, I've been hearing more and more people upset with uh, the ghost that is Barack Obama because he doesn't really do any any type of public discussion. He just, you know, does uh, an appearance here and there. But uh, a lot of people are upset with Barack Obama. And what they're upset about is there was a period about six months in the Obama administration where he had not just a majority, but a supermajority in Congress. And a Democratic supermajority. And if he'd wanted to codify it into law, he could have done that because he could have done anything, right? A supermajority, you can do a lot. Correct. But they're mad at him because they didn't do that. Is that what you're hearing? Yeah, that's what I'm hearing, Lee. And that's just one of the things that they're upset with uh, former President Obama about. But obviously, that's the most recent thing. But yeah, that, I've been hearing his name come up more and more as days keep going. And by the way, you know, people like Jimmy Dore, you know, whatever, because they were right on Russiagate. Because they didn't fall for Russiagate. They've developed an audience as an independent thinker. And I pointed out before, when it comes to something like abortion, they're not independent thinkers. They're just going along with this establishment Democrat position. They say they would have done it, and they're critical that Obama didn't. But okay. It's the same position. So I think actual independence, people who actually try to think for themselves and outside of a party orthodoxy, because there's clearly not a party orthodoxy for the Republicans on abortion. Mostly Republicans are pro-life, but not by any means all of them. 
And you're allowed to be not pro-life and be a Republican. And some Republicans who are hated by the grassroots, Liz Cheney is pro-life, but the grassroots Republicans are not pro-Liz Cheney. And they're saying, they're finally admitting the Times, New York Times, and the Washington Post, she's in trouble in Wyoming. Can you believe that, Rod, that Liz Cheney would be in trouble in Wyoming? Yeah, I saw that she put out, or, you know, uh, someone in her, in her team put out an ad asking, pretty much begging for Democrat support in Wyoming. So, yeah, it, she's not, I don't think she's going to be in uh, in power anymore, uh, really soon after in, in Wyoming. And what she's done is she's not just skeptical of Trump. Some people say, the media says, after she showed skepticism, or lack of loyalty to Trump. No, she is part of the January 6th hearing. And the January 6th hearings are a sham, an abysmal sham, a political show trial meant to go after the Republican base and Donald Trump. Do you think it's fair to say the January 6th trial has targeted the Republican base, grassroots Republicans, Rod, and am I, am I being harsh? Uh, no, one hundred percent, Lee. Uh, this this is definitely an attack on uh, on Trump supporters and Republicans. Because uh, not not all Republicans were Trump supporters or wanted him wanted him present, but it's definitely an attack on the Republican Party and anybody wants to report. Uh, Want to support Trump in 2024, and then also they're, you know, I don't know if you saw, but they they still they're still adamant that they're going to file charges against Donald Trump for, I don't know what, I guess insurrection. I guess they're going to try to charge him for that, but they they're still trying to charge him. Yeah, and I say go for it. That will backfire again. I say, if they charge Donald Trump with something, what they'll do is they'll increase the people who like him. Not majorly, but on the margin, people who've been seeing Donald Trump, people who may have been skeptical of Trump when he was president, have seen that he's been right on things. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I was. Uh, I think uh, even people in other countries, you know, he talked about Germany and how uh, Germany would be affected. If uh, uh, when Biden became president and how it would affect Europe. And here we are. I just saw a companies uh, closing down. They're asking for a bailout. Uh, energy companies asking for a bailout in Germany. So, I guess, you know, he's, he's been right on a lot of fronts. And speaking of uh, uh, Europe, the NATO summit ended today in Madrid. And we had a report from Wyatt Reed a couple of days ago. But the NATO summit ended, and I heard a quote from Biden that I laughed about. Biden said, Vladimir Putin predicted if he went into Ukraine, it would spell the end of NATO. But we are stronger than ever. We are more unified than ever. He predicted it would break up NATO's alliance. No, he didn't. Did you ever once hear Vladimir Putin or anyone 
who speaks for him, anyone who takes his position, anyone on this show, say we thought NATO was going to break up. Anyone. No, while, while you were talking, I was just starting to think, and I was like, I've never heard, you know, I'm trying to think, like, no, did I ever hear that statement? And, that, you know, no, I never heard that statement from anybody. I think NATO is stupid. And I think they'll hold together till the bitter end. That's clear. They'll hold together, even if it's bad for Ukraine and bad for their own citizens. They will sanction Russia, even though the sanctions aren't hurting Russia, but it's hurting the EU, the UK, and the US. So let's take a short break, Rod. When we come back, we'll be talking to our friend Susan Pye about this latest Supreme Court decision and how it affects immigration. Next on The Backstory. Backstory, and on the radio on 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Joining us now is a great friend of the show, immigration expert and attorney, Susan Pye. Hey, Susan, how are you? Hi, Lee, I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Great to have you on the show. So we have the Supreme Court decision that came down today. And I'm no legal whiz, so maybe I'm getting this wrong. But I heard the media try to make this out almost as though the Supreme Court ruled the Trump policy on what they call Remain in Mexico. The court ruled against that policy. But that's not my understanding of the court's ruling. It seems to me like they did not... They're not saying whether remaining in Mexico is a good or bad policy. They're saying that the president has the right and exclusively to make that decision about policy. Am I getting this right on the ruling? Um, I, you know, I'm not sure how to respond to that. I I don't think it's um, as simple as that, uh, from my understanding. My understanding is that the majority ruled that the government may return migrants to a contiguous territory, um, and they noted the discretionary nature of the wording, but that um, the return is required if a person is, is not detained. That is what the court disputed. Okay, so right, that's actually more different than the media reporting is conveying it. Explain the last part again. Okay, um, the the well, I think if you look at the dissenting opinion by Justice Alito, and he was joined by Judge Thomas and by Gorsuch, you could it probably is more illuminating than looking at the majority opinion. And this basically turns on different sections of our law in immigration law that that say some 
sections of it say the alien shall be returned, and some sections say that the alien may be returned. Um, and so the dissent is is going with the shall be returned, and the majority is going with the may be returned. And, and those are very you know, at opposite ends of the spectrum, obviously. So Justice Alito was saying that the government does does not have the authority to release, to not, to not, uh, they have to either detain the alien in the United States while their proceedings are going forward, or they have to return them, and then in this case, to a contiguous territory, Mexico. The majority is saying that the law says um, that the government may do that, not that they shall keep them in custody or return them to a contiguous territory. And the majority also notes that there are foreign affairs consequences to interpreting laws that require the return of migrants to a non-United States territory. That's interesting, because the media, every, all media I heard across the board, all the short radio segments we're making this out like a big defeat for Trump administration policy. And you're saying it was not that. Uh, when I read the opinion and I read the dissent, it, it really turns on, you know, those two things, the different sections of the law that seem to be saying different things about the same subject. That is, where, does, where do you put a migrant who is making an asylum claim, um, you know, and— um, and do do they remain detained in the United States and we don't have the detention facilities for all of them? Or do we return them to a non-contiguous territory? And um, the majority says that, uh, that that may be the case, and the dissent says that that shall be the case. That's the main thing. And then the secondary issue the, the majority talks about is that, you know, they can't interpret the law in a way that has foreign affairs consequences to the way that they interpret the uh, laws. And so in this case, our foreign affairs with Mexico, we can't make make a decision that impacts um, how our government um, deals with a foreign country like Mexico. Now, I'll go, I'll go even further. NPR, uh, and they did this very explicitly, they made this ruling out to be, they talked about, the ruling had allowed the Trump administration to turn people to the country they had left to legally file for asylum. And in many, and what they, they went on to say, in many cases, that meant returning people to dangerous countries where they faced torture and rape. Now, it may sound like the court was stepping in to protect asylum seekers. But one of the issues here really is that a lot of people claiming they're pursuing asylum claims are not pursuing asylum claims that are going to be seen as valid asylum claims by the court eventually. Right, Susan? Right. Well, it's interesting because the, the net effect on the numbers um, impacting the migrants crossing the southern border under the Remain in Mexico policy is 
as far less during the Biden administration than under the Trump administration. Under Trump, 70,000, that's seven zero, 70,000 migrants were returned to Mexico, whereas uh, from December to April of this year, under the Biden administration, under 3,000 um, migrants were released back into Mexico to await their asylum claims. Now, of that 3,000 number, only 2.4% of the one of 1,100 of those cases were decided in favor of the asylee or decided um, in favor of the asylum claim made by the migrant. So um, it just if you take the last uh, the numbers from um, the asylum cases that were heard just from April or from December through April of this year under the Biden administration, it certainly does seem like there's a uh, disproportionately low number of asylum cases that are uh, being prevailed that that prevail in court. Let's talk generally about the Biden administration and immigration, because you've been, how long have you been an immigration attorney? Uh, For about 17 years. So you've seen a few administrations. How would you overall rate the Biden administration on solving the problems that you see existing in the immigration system? Are they doing a good job or as bad job as they do with everything? Well, I know it's not a fair question exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a Democrat, so you, know, you and I are going to have different views of that. But I think it actually, this the immigration issue and the immigration, the broken immigration system, uh, the that lies squarely within the jurisdiction of Congress. And since I've been an immigration attorney, there has been no Congress, uh, whether Democrat or Republican-led, that has been able to successfully implement the changes that we desperately need to see in order to begin to even fix the broken immigration system, you know, what a president can do by executive order is, uh, I think, very little compared to what Congress has the ability to do. Um, And and that's been consistent throughout every administration that I've seen uh, handling immigration matters. Well, and and that's why I ask, because you said you you are a Democrat, and I knew that. And uh, we might disagree on many issues, but on the immigration system, do you think, for instance, the huge court backlog that we have? We've had Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies on many times. He said, I forget the last number he gave, but I think he, he said there was a million six hundred thousand cases for I think was it like eight hundred judges? Is that about right? Uh, yeah, the last I heard, there was there was a 1.5 million case backlog in immigration court with just a little over 500 judges. So uh, you may have heard in the news that the Biden administration has implemented a policy to fast track some of the asylum cases um, from the southern border or originating at the southern border. Well, that really doesn't do anything because even if they're found not to have a valid asylum case under this fast-track system at the border, they still have the option then to go before uh, um, in the regular immigration system and add their case to that 1.5 million case backlog before these 535 judges. But just even the the numbers and disparity, a million five versus 500, that is indicative of a serious, serious problem. What do you think they're going to do to help alleviate that problem, Susan? 
You know, I I don't know because that number, that case backlog is growing exponentially, you know, with each passing year. So the the problem becomes worse and worse and worse. The average amount of time um, that has been reported for an asylum case um, to come to an ultimate decision is five years. But in my personal experience, I've seen many, many asylum cases go longer, like to six, seven, eight, nine, even 10 years. So by the time a person has been waiting for their asylum case to be decided and, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years have passed, they've firmly rooted themselves within um, America and the American culture. They may have had children here. You know, many things have happened to them, you know, during that seven, eight, nine, ten years. And so, you know, with each passing year that it takes to get your asylum case heard by the immigration judge, you're more firmly entrenched in the country, and it becomes harder and harder for the administration to justify deporting that person, even if they lose their asylum case. And and that is, in fact, what we're seeing. Now, what do you see from your perspective as the biggest problem in the immigration system? If, if someone said to you, what's the number one problem that you see, what would you say it is? Well, I think that you and I have talked about this before. I think that um, there are many immigrants who come here to work, and it used to be that we had very robust temporary worker programs, and those have all diminished as the years have, you know, passed by. And I'm not sure why, because that only adds to our immigration problem, and it, it only adds to our undocumented population, because we have this thing called the 10-year bar, which means if you've been here in the United States, undocumented or illegal, you know, for over one year, once you step foot outside of the United States, you are barred from returning to the country for 10 years. So there are many people, if the 10-year bar did not exist, there are many, many, many undocumented workers who would gladly go home where they've been sending all of their money anyway and, you know, to their farm and their house and all with you know, all the accoutrements that they were able to buy by working here, and they would gladly go back to their home country, but they don't want to be subject to a 10-year bar that says that they cannot return to the United States for 10 years and work for another temporary period. So I would get rid of the 10-year bar. That would be one thing that would be a very uh, fast and easy thing to do, you know, in, in pass in Congress, and I think that it would in, in effect, it would make a lot of um, temporary workers um, voluntarily leave the United States or voluntarily depart. And how difficult do you think that would be to change that politically? Yeah, that's just oh, politically it's impossible because it seems like we just can't do anything on immigration. Um, and we just can't get anything to the president to sign on immigration. But practically, it's, you know, one line of the vast, you know, thousands of pages of immigration law just to get rid of the 10-year bar. I mean, I think the other thing that we we are going to have to do is we're going to have to set up probably like a separate but parallel um, immigration judge system just for asylum cases. And um, that's not like the, the fast-track system that the Biden administration is proposing, which ultimately, if denied, ends up in front of the you know immigration judge anyway and added to that 1.5 million case backlog, but actually a completely separate system that is parallel to the system that we have now. And those judges only do asylum cases. Uh, I think that's the only hope that we have of eradicating, you know, a large portion of this 1.5 million case backlog. Now, you you said the president won't sign anything, essentially. What is the political pressure why the president won't do anything? 
Who's he afraid of pissing off, in other words? Well, I, I think it's it's really interesting because, the you know, on a related matter, Title 42, which is the COVID-related expulsions um, at the southern border, uh, <clears throat> which is being appealed to the Fifth Circuit, but that's still in place, um, uh, many of the fiercest advocates of ending Title 42 or the, the um, very pro-immigration voices that were in the Biden administration, uh, they have left the Biden administration out of frustration. So the pro-immigration people are, are very upset, upset enough to leave the administration. And then, of course, the people who are um, for tightening immigration or more immigration controls, um, they're also upset. So I think it's just that both sides won't compromise and, you know, make just some practical fixes. I also think it's it's not very sexy to talk about things like the 10-year bar, although that's a very practical thing that could easily be changed, but it doesn't really score a lot of political points for either side. Now, meanwhile, how are, how's American business doing with all this on immigration? While we're looking at these issues, how are the companies who employ a lot of illegal immigrant labor making out? Are they getting away with stuff and as whistling past the problems? What do you see corporate America's role in the politics of this, Susan? I think they definitely are getting uh, away with a lot of because the Biden administration has said we're not having any more uh, workforce raids. So they've just made a, an executive decision to not raid workforces. And so, I mean, I think it's very common knowledge that you can you can come here and um, unlawfully be an undocumented alien and get a job in construction that pays $20 an hour, which is the same, you know, that an American gets paid, um, except you don't pay taxes. So I think most definitely American businesses who are taking advantage of um, this loophole of no workforce uh, raids, um, they're complicit in adding to the problem. And, of course, we want to have uh, these more visas and more avenues for workers to come here on a temporary basis to do things like construction because we want them to be documented. We want them to have insurance when they drive. We want them to have a license. We want them to pay taxes. But, you know, it's, it's not that way now. And it's very common knowledge that it's that way. Now, uh, You've also talked to me about the problem of velvet sweatshops and about the people who work in fields, not not construction or less picking, but who work in high tech companies and get in through H-1B visas. So I've had other people try to do it before, but explain to people if they've never heard the term velvet sweatshop, what that refers to, Susan. Yeah, that's a really interesting concept because if you like go back to Justin Sinclair, uh, Sinclair's works like on uh, the jungle, it's kind of like an indust- a modern day industrial jungle. Um, so it's it's talking about H one B workers who are here on what we call a dual intent visa, which is kind of it's a weird visa in that you have immigrant intent, you don't have immigrant intent. It's both actually, which doesn't make any sense. But they're tied to their jobs, and the backlog 
you know, for those uh, workers is so great that, like, if, if you're an Indian national, for example, you may be waiting 40, that's four zero, 40 years before you have the chance to get a green card. And in the meantime, you're tied to your employer. And so there are all of these tech workers that are suffering under work conditions that maybe American workers won't tolerate um, because they're tied to their employer through this uh, vastly broken visa system. And how has that affected lobbying, do you think? Because I noticed a few years ago when I was researching this that most of the lobbying for immigration issues does not come from agriculture companies or hospitality industry, but it comes from Silicon Valley. What is the impact of these high-tech companies on the politics of immigration, Susan? Well, I I think the high-tech industries definitely have, uh, you know, they definitely have a great impetus to lobby for increasing the number of visas in this existing framework, which many Americans maybe would not tolerate, but immigrants would. And so, you know, it's really interesting. The other day, you know, I was just scrolling through, like, my spam folder, and I saw that um, um, it was a large tech company, like something like Google, that was specifically looking for immigration attorneys who specialize in employment-authorized humanitarian uh, visa recipients. So I was really shocked when I saw that you know, because there's like a such a need for um, for high tech to hire people who have humanitarian visas to work for them. Um, so that was kind of interesting. But yeah, I, I definitely think that a lot of lobbying money is being poured into D.C. by these high tech companies because although American workers don't like the system, and it it seems like it hurts them. And the foreign workers are also being hurt and taken advantage of through this, you know, vastly broken system. It definitely is advantageous to large tech companies. And do you think most people, when they think about immigration issues, I think they think about ag issues or construction maybe. But I think people, when they think about the immigration issues, don't really realize how much of it is high-tech workers. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that the, um, I don't know as much about the, you know, the high-tech visa industry, I've, although, you know, I have um, helped the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, prepare for hearings on that issue, but um, it, it, it's a, the broken system that has to do, de- that deals with high-tech industry and the visa workers that they hire that broken system is an advantage for high-tech industry and is a disadvantage for American workers um, the way that it is now. So, uh, and, But I, I do think it would benefit the public to know more about this issue. And I know some people like Norm Matloff talk, uh, discuss it in his blog, um, and there are certain resources you can go to to talk about H-1B. Like I know you, you have Arthur, I forgot his name, Arthur from CIS. He sometimes comes on, and he seems to know a lot about this issue as well. But, yeah, it's definitely a big issue, and it definitely, you know, permeates American society because it's the high-tech industry. And also what's interesting to me is a lot of people demonize the high-tech industry, and they're, they're critical of Google and Facebook and 
whoever on Twitter on free speech grounds, but they hardly ever bring up the immigration issues with these companies is not a top criticism of high tech companies, I'm saying. So it goes both ways. They avoid it on the immigration end, but they also avoid it from the high tech critics. It's just interesting to me because these companies have a lot that they have to answer for, I think, and they clearly do affect the politics of it because they lobby, they spend so much money on lobbying and they affect the laws that get passed or even discussed. You know, I and I think it's because obviously they buy a lot of advertising. You know, high tech companies pay a lot of money to the companies that cover the news in this area. Now, back to this Supreme Court decision today. How do you see this affecting immigration policy practically in the next few months? Well, I think that the Supreme Court is fundamentally split on this issue of, you know, when um, when a foreign national presents at the border with an asylum claim, does the law say we shall detain that person until his asylum claim is decided, or may we um, detain that person until that his asylum case is decided, and in the meantime, release him into the United States for five to ten years, for example? And that's that's exactly what the split is between the majority and the dissent in in this opinion. So I think for the Remain in Mexico program, the net effect of this ruling is minor because it's like I said, it's only three thousand people from December through March of April of this year, whereas it was seventy thousand under Trump. But I think the the really huge effect of this ruling is the signaling of how the justices are split on how they're going to read immigration law, which in and of itself contradicts itself. So it's like the majority has picked one side, the dissent has picked one side. They're both correct because our immigration laws are so broken that they are contradictory to each other. Have you been following the the issue of the caravan that's now at the Mexican border? This new new caravan at all? Um, I have not, because as far as I know, you know, the caravans just keep coming. So there's a recent one. And a lot of people are asylum. They're applying for asylum. And uh, there's been an issue with them. It's called Remain in Mexico. But in many cases, Mexico doesn't want them either. You have people coming from Guatemala and Honduras and Mexico, the government and the people. Have you seen that where the Mexican government and the people don't want these Guatemalan or Honduran refugees in their their country either? Right. Well, that's been an issue, um, you know, throughout the many caravans that that have traveled to the southern border. And I think that's why the the Summit of Americas, uh, I think Mexico made its feelings uh, very well known to the United States by refusing to send their president, you know, to attend the America Summit, um, where 
Biden laid out um, all of the different um, or I forgot what it's called, but the, his uh, suggestions for control, having orderly and controlled migration throughout the Southern Hemisphere. Um, so I, I definitely think there's always um, a give and take between the United States and Mexico. What is the United States going to give to Mexico to, number one, have the Remain in Mexico program in effect, uh, which is what Trump did, and number two, um, to, to either control migration from within their borders, Mexican borders, so that it doesn't become a United States problem, well, Mexico definitely wants something in exchange for them agreeing to do that. And it is different for each nationality that they consider. Did you think that with some of the Americas, the fact that Guatemala, Honduras, and Mexico did not attend because Venezuela, Cuba were were kept from attending by the Biden administration. Do you think that completely gutted any possibility of real change that could have come out of the summit of the Americas, Susan? Uh, I think it was a, a huge red flag that um, Lopez Obrador, the Mexican president, refused to attend the Summit of Americas in, in relation to these uh, immigration um, uh, topics that Biden introduced. So I think that sending Kamala Harris down to the um, down to the southern um, hemisphere countries to talk about immigration and, you know, her saying, you know, don't come to the United States. I think um, the immigration is not going well for the Biden administration, suffice it to say. So great summary, Susan Pye. Thanks so much. Great appearance as usual. You sure know your stuff. Susan Pye talking about the latest Supreme Court ruling and also the general problem of immigration and the politics of immigration. Are you writing it all lately, Susan? Um, I, you know, I try to update my website. It's um, www.strongvisa.com. So you can see a lot about the history of legislation of immigra- on immigration going back to the Obama administration. So I, I do try to keep it up, but um, there's a lot of historical information in there that some people might find interesting. Okay, you can find more about Susan Pye at strongvisa.com. Thanks so much, Susan. Love you. We'll talk to you later. That was Susan Pye talking about immigration. When we come back, more on the backstory. This is a show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm investigative reporter Lee Stranahan, and this is the backstory. Thanks again to our guest, Susan Pye. She knows a lot about immigration, and I've had many good conversations with her over the years, learned a lot from her. That was Susan Pye in the first hour. In the second hour, we're joined by another great friend of the show, Manel Chan, the co-host of Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan here on Radio Sputnik. That's coming up next, along with your calls, 202-521-1320. 
on the backstory. So I thought Susan finishing that by saying that's not going well for the Biden administration. But honestly, I know she tries. She's a Democrat. So, and you kind of, Rod, do you feel bad at all for Democrats now? Currently? No, no. But it must be a tough job. Imagine trying to carry water for this administration. Can you name one thing, just one, Rod, one thing the Biden administration's doing a good job at? Uh, if it's if it's uh, you know dismantling America piece by piece, and if that was a uh, you know someone's objective, uh, he'd be doing a good job at that. So I would say he's doing a good job at dismantling America. Yeah, but the the only that's that's a joke answer in the sense that you're taking something he's doing badly and saying he's doing it well, right? You, you know what you did there. Right. Um, I would. I. I can't. Uh, can't. You know. Point to something and say. Well. You know. This. This is. The, you know. His shining light. This is what he. You could say. This is the. At least the Biden administration is doing this right. I. I can't think of it. And, I dare say. Okay. L- let me put it a different way. If you were to ask a loyal, intelligent, fairly honest Democrat to name something. They thought the Biden administration was doing well. What would they name? Well, I don't want to have dead air, but um, I guess fighting against the Republicans, you know, I guess on voting rights, I guess that would be what a Democrat would say. And th- then I would, I would ask, like, what? And I would say even on the voting rights, I don't like to call it the voting rights issue because you know why. They're taking the issue of voting rights, there's no threat to voting rights. Being able to not vote at a drop box does not inhibit your rights. Agreed? That's not like a poll tax. And, uh, and, and by the way, 2,000 Mules, the Dinesh D'Souza film, seems to have mellowed out a little bit. It, it, did did that film, which you said you've seen, right, Rod? I still haven't finished the lead. I see pieces of it. Uh, still haven't sat down and watched the whole thing throughout. Um, but um, I would say that uh, I don't know if you saw the interview with Carly Lake, the uh, woman who's running for governor of Arizona, and she challenged uh, Brett Baer to why you know Fox doesn't focus in on the 2020 election and how it was stolen. Yeah, Carly Lake's running in Arizona. And I, I like what I see from her in terms of the posters and the messaging. She had a message that basically just played an Andrew Breitberg video. It's him saying, F you. Remember that video? She played that video. And I thought that was cool that a politician used the Andrew Breitberg video. But I don't know much about her, aside from she's doing some stuff that I like on a uh, advertising level. Do you know much about her, Rod? 
Um, I was actually just watching. She was on Jason Whitlock's show, who has a show on The Blaze. I was actually did a like 30, 40 minute interview with her. I know she was worked in the media. I think she was a, uh, a reporter or a journalist for 30 years. Um, that's as much as I know. I, she didn't really go into her past that much. And I haven't really looked into her. I mean, I just really been, like you said, uh, ever since that tweet. And then uh, I, I know you saw the viral video where the uh, the Asian woman, I guess, she used to work for CNN Plus, asked her for an interview. And she says, yeah, as long as it's going to be on CNN Plus, it's kind of like a big, you know, a big burn. And, yeah, that, that was funny. Uh, and she walks away. So, you know, she's been I've been more interested in her. So I've been, you know, going to start looking into her. But, um, you know, she challenged Brett Baer. Uh, it was like a eight minute interview, I believe, or something like that. And she kept challenging him. And, you know, Brett Baer was you know, like uh, saying, you know, we, we've talked about the election, but it wasn't good enough. Carly Lake, she's like, yeah, you've talked about it, but you haven't really looked into it or, you know, covered it at, at any depth. And I occasionally hear stuff. I see, you know, I'll see in Pennsylvania or something, somebody's been indicted or that in Georgia, they admit there was a 20,000 votes were miscounted or whatever. I see little stuff like that dribbling out. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? You see little examples of what sure looks like voter fraud or voter malfeasance. But it never really makes it, it never gets any traction, as they say in the media. Do you see those little things, Rod? Yeah, I would I would call them puzzle pieces, and you do see puzzle pieces. Like in, in uh, Pennsylvania, we had a Philadelphia judge who was uh, found guilty of ballot stuffing. Uh, he was guilty of that, and I forget what other region the other person was from. I think it was like Lancaster or something like that. could be wrong. Um, who was found guilty of uh, some type of election fraud scheme. So, you know, it's just puzzle pieces, but obviously the media is not going to want to cover it because then people start putting these pieces together and say, well, you know, this is what's going on in our state or our locality. So, yeah, the media doesn't want to touch it. Yes. And so what they do is they repeat there have been no proof of significant voter fraud. So this example of whatever, 20,000 votes, that's not significant. It seems rather significant to me. Am I crazy? Be careful how you answer. Well, no, Lee, because then uh, we just had a, was it the DHS themselves? Did DHS themselves come out and say that 16 states' Dominion voting machines are uh, vulnerable to hacking when in 2020, if you brought up Dominion, you know, you would thought you were talking uh, bad about uh, Hillary Clinton again. You know what I mean? They, they were defending these Dominion voting machines with all their, with all their might. And I've, I've talked about this before, but I remember a few years ago, before this election in 2020, talking about problems with voting machines was something progressive liberals used to do all the time. All the time, progressive liberals brought the problems with Dominion and how voting machines have been caught changing votes. Do you remember those days, Rod? It wasn't a right-wing nut issue. It was a left-wing voter issue that many people on the left talked about. Well, yeah. Remember? Uh, in 2008, you know, I had to cover it uh, for a class when uh, Barack Obama was running for president. He was going all over. Uh, I remember famously he was in Colorado talking about how the, the election's rigged. You know, the, 
the elections rigged, these voting machines, and this, that, and the third. So, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and it's bizarre to me that things changed so much that it became a right-wing issue. Almost like the equivalent, I think, is what—and I've talked to Taylor Hudak about this before—what they did with Julian Assange. Julian Assange used to be a hero to the left. And The Guardian in the UK published Assange's work, right? Now he's thought of as a Trump-supporting right-wing nut. And so Democrats, they can't support Assange because he's got Republican cooties. And the way that changed almost overnight and that's the type of propaganda technique that I see. But they get people to change sides. When, in fact, it's very disturbing to me. But but we have a call. So let's go 202-521-1320. Owl killer, welcome to the show. What's on your mind? You know, remember, I, I wouldn't even call it uh, Republican cooties. Um, I don't think... Even Assange releasing the stuff on um, Hillary Clinton and John Podesta and, uh, you know, her her campaign, um, I don't think—I think it was more so that Trump was less likely to get us into a war, and I think he even said that. And I remember when um, Assange was being taken out of the embassy um, originally, um, he was yelling about— how Trump had failed in certain areas. Um, so I, 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 that is really what it came down to with him is that he's just an anti-war person. Doesn't matter who. Um, it, it doesn't matter if it, if it was Bush or Obama. He was. He's gonna. He's gonna expose what was really going on. Um, well, also let me amplify the point you're making there, Al Killer. Assange's exposing of Hillary Clinton was a pro. And it was not done for this reason. But you know who should have been cheering that? Bernie Sanders fans. Because what Assange exposed was how Hillary Clinton had secretly taken over the Democratic Party and rigged the system against Bernie. Do you agree with me? Definitely. And if there that if willing to rig a primary, do you think that they would be willing to rig stuff at a state level for nationally? I mean, you, you were you were talking about how um, two days ago with Carmine, you were um, or, uh, not with Carmine with uh, Jason. You were talking about how we're moving into a or how we are a fascist country. Um, the hallmarks are all there. Um, if did you watch Tucker Carlson last night when he was doing the expose um, down in Brazil, basically on how everybody uh, that is getting attacked uh, or is getting like SWAT teamed right now is has has an issue with Joe Biden? No, but but we played other stuff. Are, are you talking about Eastman and oh, Clark? More than. Jo- it's more than just Eastman and Clark. It's it's uh, Project Veritas. I mean, he went down the line. It's it's probably eight or ten people altogether. And you know, this nice old man, like that. That's how that's how he was sold. Oh, he the adults are back in the room. Oh, he's a nice old man. He may be boring, but at least he, you know, he's not going to, 
you know, it, it's going to be an, it's going to be a nice uh, change of pace getting away from Trump because that's how that's how he was sold is like he's he's going to be like the the moderate type of person because that's what he r- ran on um, a moderate platform compared to the the rest of the the field that he was running that he was up against. Um, who, whether it's him or the people that are controlling him, this is a very abusive government. And there's no there. I mean, there's no accountability. I mean, when their people get caught, which when you saw with uh, the with John Durham with his supposed investigation, even when they're dead to rights, they're 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 not held accountable. And I, I think that they this is so. What I what I've come to realize is that the. Because of our because of our influence falling in the world, and you know, our we're no longer economically, no matter how you look at it, you know, we're on downturn. And I think they've accepted that, and we're going to move into authoritarianism. It's just a roll of it's like a hot potato. It, whether it's going to be what you consider a right wing, like a conservative type of uh, authoritarianism, or it's going to be a left wing authoritarianism, it's just going to be who gets. Um, you know, who's ever in charge when the collapse does happen. And that, that's really what I see. And for, and I, I really, I really want to say this to liberals. You don't know what I, people are, people follow groups and groupthink, regardless of, and tribalism is, that's what people resort to when there's nothing, when there's nothing else there. And that's why I, I saw this I, I see the divide that is being pushed in this country as so potentially. Uh, I, I see how the potential, the outcome could be devastating to our country. In that, there people are going to come for like that. That's why when you see the collapse of empires and you, you see the the stuff that is blamed on the collapse, the, people are going to. That's going away. The, the pride stuff is going away. The transgenderism stuff will go away. There will be no blue hair. And I'm saying it facetiously, but that is what is going to be blamed for the, if a right, if quote unquote, a right wing authoritarianism ever did take over. And we already see what the left would do. I mean, they, I'm t- I, I really believe more than half the country uh, or half the liberals, they would put us in a false, in a forced labor camp if they could. And it's just, I I I don't I don't, don't want to see the country get there, but the outside of our ability because we're fat and happy. If that's not there, I I do I do see a I, I do see the potential for some some really bad things happening in this country, and there's well, nobody will call it out. Let me let me say something slightly more depressing, even in your, your depressing little rant, Al Keller, which I agree with completely. So I'm not downing it, but uh, what happened with the Hunter Biden laptop is not subtle. A major metropolitan newspaper was censored over something that was the truth. And you can try to put it off. I'm not saying you're doing this, but you can try to say, well, it was high tech companies. No. 50 former intelligence officials lied in a letter to impact the election and cover up a crime. Have you heard the message? They found some phone messages on Biden's laptop, and they've been releasing them. 
Did you hear Joe Biden calling his son Hunter and talking about the New York Times story? Did you hear that? Yes, I did. And I didn't have Rod grab it because I I thought it wasn't it needs explanation. But the the audio you hear Biden talking to his son about he's clearly following the the stories about his son. He had lied in front of the debate, in front of the media, and said he had nothing to do with his son's business dealings and didn't know about them. This proves that was a lie. And what I'm saying is that's not subtle. That's enough where he should be up on criminal charges, much less, and the Democrats should be saying he can't be a president. They should be taking a vote of no confidence and moving to get him out. And just the fact it's not subtle that his son was making 80 grand from Burisma. Who, who do you know, Al Killer? Name one person you know who makes 80 grand a month. One human being. Not one person. Right. The only person I knew who, who did was Steve Bannon. And case closed. But great call, Al Killer. I think people should be very aware the fascism is here. And you agree with me? Oh, 100%. And I, I just want I, one last thing go with the uh, member I, I had said probably a year ago that I think everything in the dossier happened, but I think it was Hunter Biden. I'm even more convinced of that now. They just replaced uh, they just replaced Hunter Biden with Trump. Yes. And it's one thing they do. As soon as you see them talk about something the other side is doing, you should be suspicious that that is a form of projection on their part. But let's go. Great call, Al Killer. Let's go. 202-521-1320. Eric in Florida. Thanks for waiting. What's on your mind? Hey, guys. I just wanted to push back on some things I heard uh, Owl Killer saying, which, and, you know, normally I agree with, like, everything, everything you guys are saying, but, like, you know, he's saying that, you know, liberals are going to put people in, uh, you know, labor camps and things like that. Well, guess what? You guys are still liberals, classical liberals, and uh, they do put people in labor camps right now. They're called state prisons, and they're full of black guys if you ever drove by one. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, a lot of uh, conservatives and things like that, they don't realize that they are technically still liberals. You know, you might have to go to, you know, might have to take a 102 class or something like that to find that, find out about that. But, you know, people who believe that, you know, individual rights, uh, are just, you know, automatically going to make everything work out. You know, that's a dogma, okay? That's an ideology. It is not a, uh, it's not a theory or anything like that. You know, does that make sense? Well, what do you think is behind it? Because oh, I, I, I agree with you, by and large. And what I, what I, would, what I would call is te technocratic neoliberalism. Yeah, oh, yeah. Neoliberalism is a patently right-wing ideology, and really, it's really all it is is right wing populism. They're trying to go around saying everybody, you know, they want they want to make uh, everything about the individual and things like that. They want to treat everybody like the, like a small business, right? Um, 
And, but that is that is really just a um, a right wing ideology designed to take the heat off of the people who are really responsible for you know the economy, politics, everything like that. You know all these all of these NGOs, things like that. They're just paramilitaries for right wing governments. I'm sorry, Western right wing governments, I should say. All they're all they're worried, so, worried about is holding on to their to their uh, grasp on power. Okay, and their grasp on power comes from money, right? So yes, they are capitalists. They like their capital, and they're going to kill anybody they have to to keep it. Except the the, and this is why I tend to be more libertarian on this. Well, libertarians the, are also liberals. They have a dogma about individualism that thinks it's going to make the economy work out, and that's just a religion. Well, I would disagree, and I think libertarian economists like Mark Frost would disagree adamantly. It is not a voodoo religion. Is a functioning. How do how do you how do you make the market not work? When people want something, supply and demand. Yeah, when people want, how do you get around it? It's like it's like saying gravity's voodoo. Yeah, no. When 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 people want something, they have to go and ask somebody to make it for them. They have to go and talk to a laborer. And and where do all the laborers live now? They live in China now. That's the market. That's right. the market is labor. But as opposed to what? What what do you what do you picture instead of that? I don't picture anything instead of that. I just I just want it to be run better and more equitable and more equitable. Listen, even Karl Marx praised capitalism for being better than what than what came before it, right? But at some point, you're going to have to move beyond that too. And you know, and so that's the thing about liberals. They don't know. Uh, they don't. They have no idea. They have no concept or imagination. It is easier for these people to imagine the end of the world than than an alternative to capitalism. I mean, listen. What is an alternative to capitalism? Uh, the government owning the power company. Uh, is that is that really socialism? I mean, some people think it is. Uh, I, I would take it. <laughs> I would take it more than what than what we have. What next era energy owns? You know, half of all the utilities in the country. Uh, you know, that's capitalism too. Everyone, everyone thinks everyone thinks in, in communist countries that oh, the party elite's going to control everything. Well, guess what? You have a party elite. It's called it's called capitalists. They are your party elite. You got Jeff Bezos and uh, whoever else who are making your making your uh, political decisions in the in the Washington Post right now. So, so yeah, I'll. I, I will, yeah, bring on the gulags. Bring on the gulags, owl killer. You know, we already have them. Just the wrong people are in them. The poor people are in them now. <laughs> so what do, you think should, what do you think should happen when someone steals from someone or robs someone? When someone, oh, 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 let's say he's black. Oh, God, he's black. When someone black beats someone up and steals their money on the street, what should happen to them? Should they get a, a party? Should we put on hats? Should we blow out the candles on a cake? What, what should you do? Three cheers? What should happen to people? You know, uh, maybe. there are bad people in the world. There are people who actually beat people's head in and steal from them. You know that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, are you going to ask me if I think that's a good thing right now? Come on, Lee. No, no but a, a lot of people who, who end up in prison didn't end up there because of capitalism. They end up there because they beat someone's head in and stole from them. you think that uh, one quarter of the world's uh, prisoner population, which resides in the U.S., uh, are all criminals? Name someone. I can name someone who's not Assange. He is the, the 
minority in terms of numbers. Most people in prison are there because they deserve to be. Most people, sorry, go, go into prison and point out the guy to me who, who, who's not guilty. Kiriakou. Anybody else? So uh, they're like, Americans are five times more criminal than everybody else? Or what are you saying, Lee? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is a lot of people point, point out the person to me in prison specifically, say, this guy, it's unfair. In most cases, even John Kiriakou, who served time in prisons, admitted it. Most people are bad people. Most of the people in prison are bad people. Lee, guess what? Most people outside of prison are bad people, too. No, they're not. Have you beat anyone up today? Uh, only at the negotiating table, Lee. Okay. Then do you see the difference between you and the guy who literally beat someone up? Uh, who beat somebody up? I don't know. You're, you know, you're trying to draw me into a hypothetical here. What? I mean, listen, there was— No, I'm not drawing you into a hypothetical. Go into court and then point to me when you see obvious cases. The cases that I'm seeing are mostly people who, in fact, committed crimes. And you don't, you don't even want to admit that. We've got the lowest amount of crime rate in, the, in, in like our history, and we've got the highest amount of people in jail. What's going on? I'd have to look at the numbers, but I don't think we have the lowest crime rate. We've got one quarter of uh, all the world's prisoners in this country with 5% of the world's population. Do the math on that. Okay. And, and I'm saying the vast majority of them are violent criminals. Prove me wrong. But where's your source? My source is looking at thousands of cases that I've looked at covering stuff as a reporter. I go, that guy's guilty. He deserves to be there. Every day they're letting guys out of jail who have been there for, you know, 40 years, and they realize they didn't actually do it. You know, oh, how many— You'll find rare, you'll find rare cases where that happened. Most people are guilty, and that's why those make news, because they're rare. They're guilty. You know, when the United States, everybody goes to jail on a, uh, on a confession. 99% of all convictions don't even go to trial. So how do you really know they're guilty? How do you know the cops aren't browbeating these people into it? Just like the Soviet Union, where they make you sign a confession, Lee. No, that's, it's not just like the Soviet Union. You're in denial about crime, about violent crime. Hey, listen, Lee, we got more people in jail right now than Joseph Stalin. Are, are the victims, are the victims, many of whom are black, are they liars? Are the victims, are, are the black women who got raped and robbed lying? Sure. Lying floozies? Of course not. You know, well, okay. Even if, uh... You know, listen, Joe Biden's got, got the same problem. He's in the White House. Where, where about, what about Tara Reid? Okay, so don't tell me that there's a justice system in this country. Or don't tell me there's a rule of law in the United States. Come on, Lee. You know what? Oh, I didn't tell you that, but what I'm saying is being in denial about violent crime when you have people who are set on fire yeah, listen, in America. Everywhere. You have incredibly violent criminals in America. You know, okay, well, the Chinese have, you know, five times as many people. As no, how about, the, how about the shootings in Chicago? Are those made up every week? Oh. Every week. The baby who was shot in a car over the weekend in Chicago, is that a, the man lying? I'm sure he's not lying. Of course not. Why? So what What about Some the victims who report getting shot? Or uh, everything that happens? You know, that's what, that's what the anarchists used to say. Are you an anarchist, Lee? 
I know you're a libertarian. There's a little overlap there. No, but I'm not in denial about criminals, violent criminals, and, and you are. But great call, Eric. Eric, we're out of time. Great call. Call back any time. Eric from Florida. We're out of time. And we have to go to Manel Chan, co-host of Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan in the mornings here in Radio Sputnik. Let's take a short break and talk to Manila on the backstory. On the backstory, 105.5 FM, AM 1390 is where you can find us on the radio dial in the Empire of Lies, capital, Washington, D.C. Joining us now is a great friend of the show and the co-host of Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan, Manila Chan. Hey, Manila, how you doing? Hey there, Lee. Good to be back with you. Good to have you on. Uh, so... It's a, it's I would say a weird news cycle. It's kind of a, the weird summer point where we've had a few big Supreme Court decisions, and then in the war, and we've had the NATO summit, which is them getting together and lying, as far, far as I can see. Let's talk about NATO and G7. Did our leaders seem like they're in a fantasy world? Is it just me? Are you noticing the same thing? They seem to be living in a parallel universe. Well, I wouldn't say it's a parallel universe. I would say this existence that they are in has existed for quite a while um, since America has been resting on her laurels since World War II. Um, I think NATO, you know, the way it has developed over the course of the, the tail end of the, the 20th century with the expansion and what have you. It's all full of yes-men because NATO is the USA. The USA is NATO. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it is. And anyone that, you know, begs to differ is just flat-out wrong because when does NATO not jump when the U.S. When the U.S. says jump, NATO says how, how high. So when you surround yourself with a bunch of yes-men – this is a, a problem for whether, whether this is a company or a country. This is a problem when you surround yourself with all yes men. You're, you start to have bad ideas and nobody's going to tell you. And that's the best way to think of business is when you, when, when you don't have people telling you the truth. And I think that's what's happening in NATO is countries are all vassal states to the United States at this point. We have, all, we have effectively weakened our allies so they can become servant states to the United States. And we are effectively getting high on our own supply, and nobody is telling us to stop doing it. And so we're at this point, at, I would say, I mean, we're, we're two minutes from midnight, according to, uh, to, what is it, the doomsday clock, right? And I think that's by way of the U.S. leading us there, because we're at the precipice of World War III. We're pissing off. Not only have we poked the, the bear in Russia, we're poking the dragon in China. So 
when you continue to surround yourself with these people telling you, oh, oh, yes, Mr. Biden, this is a great idea. Yes, Mr. Biden, this is a wonderful idea. Yeah, let's do that. And you surround yourself with war hawks like Jake Sullivan, idiots like Anthony Blinken. We're, we're pushing our way by way of NATO into World War III. And that's dangerous, obviously. <laughs> well, and obviously, uh, the, the G7, they had this Janet Yellen idea of posing a price cap on Russian oil. OPEC would post a price cap on Russian oil. You you saw that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I and went to Yale. It was a complete Yale? A non-starter. And no one said, this is crazy. But now they're admitting it was crazy and was never going to work. Well, That's why I say parallel universe. But it, it makes your point, too, that no one stood up and said to them, why we think this will ever happen, right? You're absolutely right. I mean, again, nobody's telling us to get off our own supply at this point. Janet Yellen, I thought I thought she went to Yale, right? I mean, she's supposed to be this very intelligent, Ivy League-educated lady, and, and I'm sure she is. But at the same time, her boss is Joe Biden. And you, every job in the U.S. government, a high-ranking official like Janet Yellen, at the end of the day, you work at the president's leisure. And if the boss says, you know, I'm trying to achieve X, Y, Z, she's probably forced into trying to figure out how to get to X, Y, Z. So I'm not going to blame Janet Yellen entirely on this, um, because at the end of the day, this is still a job. It's her job, and she's trying to accomplish her boss's goal and mission, and for her to arrive at these price caps that nobody else is going to agree to because, one, the U.S. is confused that the whole world, it's not that the whole world wants to be a client state to the U.S., but again, we've lived in that world for so long, you know, at the latter half of the 20th century, that we we are somehow under the impression that the rest of the world wants to be our servant state, right? Right. But we're in the 21st century now, and we have this big, this, this big boy in China who grew up over the course of the last 40 years. Maybe he was a little pipsqueak 50 years ago, but no more, right? The magical summer happened. He went through puberty, and now he's a stud. China is controlling the markets. China's asking for more oil from Russia. Trade with Russia has actually gone up 20% in the past five months of this year than it did in previous years. And not only that, India has demand as well. India, I mean, all these, these BRICS nations are really beginning to, I think, push back and create a problem for other trading blocks like the EU and, you know, whatever trading groups the U.S. has as well. The BRICS nations are trading with Russia. Brazil is asking for exceptions at the WTO for fertilizer exports from Russia. They're asking for an exemption from these sanctions so they don't get in trouble because they need uh, fertilizer because the whole western half of Brazil is where their soybean farms are, and that's a major export for them. So. Between price caps on oil and people needing a lot of other stuff coming out of Russia, 
Janet Yellen's idea is not going to work very well when the rest of the world has grown up as well. They've hit puberty. They're, you know, starting to look pretty good. They're still courting Russia. They're not going to stop just because the United States has, you know, usually been been the gal that everyone has gone to. Well, you know, times have changed. And I, I think the U.S. just hasn't gotten with it. We've just, we're stuck in the 1950s, the 1960s, and we think there's, we're still this world hegemonic power. And we haven't, we've failed to acknowledge that other countries have developed, and they're looking pretty good. And we're just not there. And I think part of the reason is because we elect these officials that, hell, they grew up in that era, right? That was the heyday of America. So they still have this view of America as still being in the heyday. We're not there anymore because we're lacking leadership with with vision for the future. We are are electing people that are still looking at the past and basing the future on solely America's old accomplishments in a world that no longer exists. And that's what's terrifying to me, being mom of, you know, a kid that's only three and a half, what's his future going to look like? Because the, the people that are making decisions today are more or less around 80 years old. I would say that's average. Maybe it's 106. I could be wrong. But on Capitol Hill, we're looking at people in their 80s making decisions based on what America looked like 50 years ago. And that is not applicable today. Now, speaking of anachronisms, am I correct that you just referred to the United States as a gal? <laughs> she is a, has been a good old gal, but uh, she's seen better days, Lee. Okay, you didn't call her a dame, I'm sure. A dame? A gal? Go, go with that. But and, and the gal is also out of tampons. And that's true. That is not that that Virginia DC, is that one of the places when you go to the drugstore, the grocery store, are the shelves bereft of tampons, feminine hygiene products out out at the store? Are you seeing that, Mino? For me, I I to be honest, I ever since COVID hit I have gotten into the habit of strictly ordering things online, so I don't see the shelves themselves. And I'm a little bit of a doomsday prepper. I'll admit that, too. So I'm pretty stocked up on on shelf-stable items. <laughs> but that's yeah, but I saw some, I saw some pictures from uh, a, a CVS recently that was in Alexandria. Virginia, right outside D.C., and again, the shelves empty of feminine hygiene products. And how weird is that? You know, I find it weird and it's kind of funny in a sense. It's funny to talk about something involving genitalia. You know, I'm a a 12-year-old at heart. But uh, the fact that a basic consumer product like that is unavailable at stores all over the country is weird. Isn't that weird and, and very unlike America? Uh, well, Lee, it is, it is very much like the Biden's America, right? Like this is, I mean, first we were out of baby formula and we're still out where, you know, production has, production has fired off, but they haven't made it back to the shelves yet, right? We're still begging for baby formula from the European countries. 
That's number one. So we shouldn't be shocked that women's hygiene products are are bare on the shelves. But I can also make a joke that perhaps they should go check the boys' bathrooms in high schools because I hear they're stocking them in there. So maybe girls need to yes. go bare. Now, am I right in thinking... I've been covering news. I've been a reporter for 17 years now. But am I right in thinking the period that we're in now, in general, is really freaking weird? It seems it seems unusually out of balance. The world seems unusually out of balance. Is that in general, or is it just health problems I've had that's causing me to feel dizzy? Are you saying it too, Manila? Well, Lee, I don't know if you meant that as a joke, the period that we are in, but. Uh oh, no, I'm not that clever, but good. Well played, Manila. Well played. <laughs> well, I'm going to agree with you on that one, is that, um, like you, I'm very close to 20 years in, in media myself, and it it does seem like the world is a little wackier a little more wacky than it has ever been, you know, um, between these cultural fights that we're having in our own societies, between, you know, uh, the 50-year precedent of Roe being effectively overturned. Well, really, it's not overturned. It's just being kicked back to the state. Um, you know, these weird shortages of baby formula, of tampons, women's hygiene products, um, it's, I've never, in my over 40 years of life, not ever seen a country that looked like this, where we had a president that warned the American people of mass food shortages, of, you know, general goods that are not going to be available to us anymore, that gasoline in California is nearing $10 a gallon. I mean, I... And I'm from California, right? So I'm used to these very high prices. But to see those California prices here on the Virginia side, which is where I live, it is unreal. It's, it's, it's unreal. This is an untenable state that we're living in. I don't know what President Biden is planning on doing about it. I mean, he speaks in platitudes. He hasn't really outlined anything like this gas this holiday, you know, gas tax holiday that he's proposed. Uh, the Motley Fool um, has done the math on it, you know, based on the average amount of people, so how much people drive per month and, you know, all of that. And they, you know, d- uh, did the math with the average price of, of gas right now. You're in, in the course of the three months, the average American is going to save about $26 in three months. So I don't know how we got here so quickly when we were seeing a booming economy 24 months ago. COVID? Well, also on that, because like you, I've lived in L.A. before, and I feel like I lived in L.A. in the 80s, 90s, and the early 2000s. And my dad's from California originally. And he used to drive around with me sometimes, and he used to say how different it was. California, when he was there in the 50s, He used to say, this all used to be orange groves. But because I lived there in the 90s and 2000s, I miss that. But I feel like I lived in L.A. 
in the last good time to live in L.A. When I lived there, there is not homeless everywhere. You would see homeless people somewhere, but there wasn't poop on the street and there weren't tent cities. And in that same sense, I moved out of D.C. two years ago. When I lived in D.C. during the Trump administration, I thought it was a pretty good place to live, not in D.C., but around there. I, I, I used to like walking through Lafayette Square Park to get to work. And I used to like walking by the White House and seeing the sights. Now, it's been two years since I've been in D.C. Is that gone? Is Lafayette Square Park still essentially closed and under tight capital police control? Is 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 that another place lost to the president, Minnell? Well, as far as D.C. goes, I'm not only going to put that on President Biden, but I'm also going to put that on Mayor Muriel Bowser. Um, and, it, you know, the, her her placation of the the violent rioters. I mean, and, and, and while you were you were gone, but I still was going into work at the time at RT and the violent riots were happening. There were times where we couldn't leave our office. Um, because the rioters were rolling through the streets. There were, you know, uh, not only BLM, but you're talking about Antifa and all these other, and people, and other hooligans, I'm going to, you know, use that antiquated term, but there were other hooligans who were neither protesters of any sort. They were just there exploiting uh, the chaos. I mean, you're seeing busted windows everywhere. First, the, the pandemic effectively ruined the D.C. economy. So many of my favorite restaurants in the area, and I'll, I'll extend this to back home in Los Angeles as well, because it's, it's, D.C. is looking like L.A. now. And, and I was just home um, in April in Los Angeles. It's, it's a mirror image of Los Angeles with older buildings and less tall buildings. Um, there's homeless everywhere. There are boarded-up windows everywhere. Businesses have been shuttered all over downtown D.C. The White House has you know, these 12-foot-high, unscalable gates. And not only are they, you know, the fencing, but it's it's fencing you can't look through. So you can't really look into um, the south, the north lawn. You could, at a dis- distance, you can go to the south lawn. Um, but on the north lawn, you can't walk to the front anymore and take that selfie. You have to walk to the other end of the park to see it at a distance so you can look over the fence. Um it's guarded with police everywhere. Capitol Hill, same thing, unscalable uh, fencing surrounding it. Uh, recently, they erected the same fencing around uh, SCOTUS because they knew this row decision was coming down. So everything is, is – the people's house is not the people's house because we're not allowed to go in. Everything is effectively shut off. The city is teeming with homeless people and fecal matter everywhere. And like you, I lived downtown for many years, and I used to – I had no fear, you know, going back eight, seven, six, five years ago, four years ago. I had no fear of walking through downtown, right? But the whole you – know, with the rise of the, the Asian hate stuff happening, um, Mayor Bowser placating to these these groups, and, and the DAs not pressing charges – and holding these people accountable for the crimes that they're committing on innocent civilians that are trying to get from point A to point B, it has become a madhouse, just like Los Angeles. And 
I have been through some stuff. I've, I've had guns held up to my head because I've been a reporter around the world. I've had, you know, long rifles pointed at me. I've, I've been through some stuff, and I've kept it together. I was more afraid walking through downtown D.C. this spring than any of those instances. So something is happening in this country. It doesn't feel very good, and it's like the, the police don't want any part of it either because they're not getting – they're not – being backed by the local municipality, um, and and DC has just kind of lost that that luster that you know where, where you look at the White House and you you feel proud to be an American. It's not there anymore because you literally can't look at the White House anymore, uh, and it's very sad. And then when you come home, you realize you can't feed your baby because there's no baby formula. Uh, you have to be careful every time you open your mouth to somebody because you might be using the wrong pronoun. You have to, everything, this world is wackier than it has ever been, Lee, and it's not just you. Uh, I think a lot of people would agree with you and I that things feel weird right now. And and I, it, I don't know if it's a Biden thing, but I will say he's certainly exacerbated it in 18 months. If we're in a race for the bottom, he has definitely taken the steering wheel and thrown us into fifth gear. And the, the way you describe it, I, do you ever see tumbleweeds going down the street? I picture tumbleweeds. It sounds dystopian, right? It is. We, if, oh, my gosh. If, since you haven't been here in two years, if you go outside, you know um, Capitol Hill is right next to Union Station. And the, the any yes. grass, any patch of grass outside of Union has a homeless tent. Then there was a serial killer. I don't know if you heard about this. A serial killer killing homeless women. He was called the shopping cart serial killer. He was killing homeless women and stuffing them in a shopping cart all around town. So this is very much a, a dystopian, like, horror B-movie that the nation's capital were supposed to be this beacon city on the hill. It was nice and clean when you lived here a few years ago. It felt great. I agree with you. It felt great a few years ago to walk by I, and it's not because it was a, a Trump White House. I, I just it, it was just safer. It was just better. Um, restaurants were open. People were still out. People weren't afraid of each other, not because they thought the other person was a thug. You know, now we've trained everybody to be afraid of another person that, you know, people think you have COVID by default. Um, so we've trained people over the course of two years to be afraid of other humans. And well, remember, remember two years ago. Tell me if I'm lying. The biggest problem was, I, I swear to God, tell me if I'm wrong, was 15 and 16-year-old girl tourists from China or someplace, meaning you couldn't get your scooter down the street. Remember that? That was the biggest problem you'd have. Huge <laughs> amounts of French or people from foreign lands coming to CDC. They were everywhere, and they made it hard to ride your scooter. Remember those days? Manila? They're gone, Lee. They're not, they're not there. I mean, there's still tourists here, um, but it wasn't those levels, the pre-pandemic levels. And I, I know, you know, the, the tourism people in D.C. are going to say, oh, this is, you know, a post-pandemic um, recovery and we're in that mode. And they're going to they're gonna media spin it. But being a local and having lived here for almost a decade, I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's beyond that. It's beyond the pandemic. It's the environment. It has changed. The vibe has changed, and when so many businesses and offices, I should add, 
the pandemic made so many companies realize that they don't need to pay an arm and a leg anymore because they realize everybody's job could be virtual. All these offices in downtown D.C. are now vacantly, totally vacant. So why would... Yes, and I used to have an office there, too. So, Manila, we're almost out of time. Tell us what you're covering coming up on fault lines. Uh, tomorrow, we will be talking about, uh, I don't know if you saw, SCOTUS also ruled on Title 42, remain in Mexico. They don't have to remain in Mexico anymore. We're going to cover some of that. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about Roe and this monumental change, especially with Katanji uh, Brown-Jackson uh, being sworn in today. doesn't tip the court in a different direction, but, you know, still a momentous occasion. Um, and we'll be, you know, discussing whatever else uh, is breaking news that kind of writes itself coming out of uh, Ukraine and, and Russia. Yes, and you can listen to Fault Lines with Thomas and Stranahan 6 to 9 a.m., East Coast time, right? Well, Thomas and Chan. Did I get... Did, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I misspoke. But is did I get it right at 6 to 9? Uh, 7 to 10. Okay. See, I can never remember because my old radio show on Sirius XM was 6. And now it's 8 for me anyway because I'm Central Time. But Manel Chan, great appearance as usual. Thanks for sharing your dystopian nightmare with us. And thanks to Susan Pye. We'll be back tomorrow on The Backstory.